0: Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality
1: and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello, and welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am very excited to bring you today's guest, Tom Campbell, who is a physicist, lecturer, and author of the My Big Toe trilogy. Toe is an acronym for Theory of Everything. It is a work that unifies general relativity, quantum mechanics, and metaphysics, along with the origins of consciousness. His work represents the results and conclusions of 30 years of careful scientific exploration of the boundaries and contents of reality from both physical and metaphysical viewpoints. Now in his career, he has also worked in applied physics for organizations like the Department of Defense as well as NASA. He has built a very active community around his theory of everything where his YouTube videos have garnered over 3 million views. It is an honor to have him with us today. Now, because Tom has so much wisdom and insight, and because what he talks about is complex and requires some deeper thinking, we decided to split this recording into two episodes. You are now listening to part one of this episode. In this episode, we discuss what he means when he says that we actually live in a virtual reality. Get ready to have mind blown and whole new way of thinking about everything The three ways to identify what you are here to learn in this lifetime. The difference between free will and choice, which those of you who have been listening to Cosmos and you for a while know this is a topic I'm very interested in, but he has a very different uh, slant to it. And he takes the role probability plays in that, which is very interesting. So there's a lot to get into in this episode. So without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much for being here today.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Susanna, for inviting me. Uh, I think this is going to be fun.
1: This is going to be fun. I am very excited to jump into this today. And for those of you who in our audience who do not know, Tom Campbell's work, or about my big toe. Could you start by telling us a bit about your background, your story, your journey that brought you to where you are today?
0: Okay, I'm a scientist, a physicist, and um, I'm a little different, a little odd, I guess, as physicists come in that uh, in the last forty years I've kind of had two professions, two uh, two tracks that I followed. The one was as a normal physicist. I got out of graduate school. And uh, took a job, and I've been working ever since as a uh, applied physicist. Worked uh, some uh, for uh, the government. Worked some in missile uh, defense technology. Worked for NASA and a half a dozen other other companies. Uh, the last uh, dozen years or so as a consultant. Uh, that way, I got to do all the fun work and, uh, and none of the, you know, the, the, the bad work. So. <laughs>
1: the politics.
0: Yeah, the politics, yeah. right. I could stay out of the politics. Yeah. It, was, it was real nice. So anyway, that's kind of my, my background in, in uh, physics as an applied physicist as opposed to an academic physicist. Now, just as I got out of graduate school and took my first job, I bumped into Robert Monroe, who wrote books, Journeys Out of the Body, then, let's see, he had two more, um, Far Journeys and Ultimate Journey. I think I got that right. Anyway, uh, this was by 1972, and you see this goes back a long, a long way, (laughs) and uh, what I did with Bob is he was making a lab to study consciousness. He had had out-of-body experiences, just happened to him, and he couldn't not make have them happen to him, they just happened whether he wanted them or not. they scared him half to death. He wanted to understand it, so he, being a fairly wealthy guy, he built a, a lab and wanted to study consciousness and I happened to come across him. he was looking for some scientists, and uh, I wasn't particularly looking for anything, but I found Bob Monroe to be a very interesting guy, and I thought it would be a lot of fun and would learn a lot if uh, you know I became a consciousness researcher you know, nights and weekends. So uh, that's what I did. And some, oh, you know, uh, 20, 30 years later, you know, I uh, thought I understood it enough to start, you know, writing it down and talking about it. And then probably a decade after that, I actually did write it down. And that's what uh, got published as my three books in a trilogy, My Big Toe. So, I'm a consciousness researcher and a physicist, and kind of an odd thing happened uh, on, on these two paths is that when I finally got to the point where I thought I understood consciousness, that is, had a the theory of consciousness, how that worked, I then realized that the same logical understanding, the same ideas that explain consciousness also explain physics. And I wouldn't have noticed that if I hadn't also been a physicist. So it kind of took this combination to end up where I am. And I realized that the big problems in physics that, you know, had for the last like 88 years now, almost, you know, a century, were these big um, paradoxes that nobody could really understand. They, They just knew it was like that, but there was no theory, no idea, no basic fundamental understanding about how these things work. And that was quantum mechanics, you know, why particles should be described as probability distributions, relativity, which is, you know, why should the speed of light be a constant, and then lots of other details like uh, mostly in in quantum mechanics like uh, tunneling and um, uh, other, uh, what you often hear in the, in the, uh, lay literature as weird science. Mm,
1: spooky uh, science.
0: Yeah, spooky, spooky, weird science. Mm-hmm. So all of that spooky, weird science now, from my viewpoint, is very understandable. It's neither spooky nor weird. Because if you understand the way consciousness works, then you can see how the physics has to work the way it does. It couldn't be any other way. And, um, So that was kind of a a big aha moment for me that uh, I actually got to combine both of those fields. In the beginning, it was like the day job and the night job, and the two never really cross-connected much, at least not that anybody could see because the people in my uh, physics career weren't um, (laughs) didn't know much about consciousness and really didn't have a whole lot of interest in it either. And the people in my consciousness uh, research really didn't know much about physics and, uh, you know, didn't really want to know too much about it either. So those two were kept separate. And uh, as far as my interaction with other people, now, as far as my own work went, I always combined both of those fields, because I found that in the study of consciousness, I learned how to access information that is not normally available. So I guess we could call that paranormal, but it's it's just information that's always available if you know how to access it. And I could use that in solving physics problems and doing the work that I that I did. Uh, so I combined them both in my own mind, but not, you know, not in my interactions with the people in either of those two groups. So that's the neat thing, is that this uh, consciousness uh, theory Uh, My Big Toe started out as a theory of consciousness and turned into a theory of everything because it also describes physics. And as new physics experiments are done and new information is revealed, it just gets better and better. Back uh, when I first published the books in February 2002, there was probably me and maybe a half a dozen other people in the scientific and philosophical world that thought virtual reality – was a sane idea, and everybody else thought it was an insane idea. It didn't make any sense. And now, a decade and a half later, virtual reality is kind of the big new thing in physics. Now there's hundreds and hundreds of physicists who think virtual reality is a really good idea and makes more sense than any other uh, uh, perspective about how this reality works. And it's not because physicists... You know, just somehow thought that, uh, virtual reality would be better. It's because their experiments that they have done have kind of drugged them kicking and screaming to the conclusion that our reality is information based, which means it's computed, which means it's a virtual reality. It's a simulation. And that makes sense according to the physics experiments that are being done. And the old idea that this is a, physical matter and energy kind of universe just doesn't make sense anymore according to the experiments that are done these days. It just doesn't work. If you start with that, this is physical, you know, physical stuff in our physical world, in this universe, and that uh, you know, that's an and energy that shows how that physical stuff interacts. If you start from that viewpoint, you can't get the right answers. The, the experiments won't support that. So that's where we are. So I'm I'm getting more more and more off the fringe and more into the mainstream. You know, every uh, year that goes by. <laughs> where, so that's that's good.
1: Where would you say that we stand? Um, you're starting to allude to it in terms of physics and philosophy and spirituality and consciousness in the scientific world, specifically in in physics. Would it? Would you say the mainstream physics world is what? 50% there in seeing this? 70, 30? Oh, well. What would you say?
0: Well, I'd say that it's growing quickly. Uh-huh. If I had to guess right now, I'd probably say, you know, in the physics world, it's just like most other uh, professions. You have lots of subspecialties. Yeah. You know, just like in medicine, you know, you have your GPs, but then you have all your specialists. Well, physics is like that. So there's probably about half the physicists who yet at this point aren't even in the argument, you know, because that's not their thing. Yeah. They do they do something else, you know, they have some other kind of thing. They work on materials or they work on other sorts of physics and these kind of big ideas aren't really on their radar so much. So you have that. But of the physicists who are paying attention to cosmology and you know, what's the nature of reality and how does how does reality work? I'd say that we're probably at about 30, Mm -hmm. 35 Mm percent are now thinking that virtual reality is not something that you can just toss out for being ridiculous. That it's an idea that needs to be thought about. In other words, it's taken seriously. It's it's seen as good physics as opposed to just something ridiculous. I'd say we're at least at the 30 percent, maybe more, maybe even as much as 50 percent of the physicists think that virtual reality is an idea that. Needs to be dealt with, you know, in physics. In other words, a serious idea as opposed to a frivolous idea. So it's come a long way, maybe, as they uh, as they say. So I think we're we're really getting there, and and that's been over a decade and a half. We From almost no one who had that idea, um, Dr. Edward Fredkin, physicist, a still working physicist, very well known, and he back in 1992 wrote some papers. I think it was 92. Anyways, in the 1990s, he wrote a couple of papers basically showing that his research showed that this was a virtual reality. So he was kind of the first physicist on board with that, uh, that early. And of course, um, he didn't get a whole lot of people agreeing with him until just in the last decade. And then suddenly he seems to be getting smarter and smarter uh, (laughs) as uh, time, as time goes on.
1: So for those Of our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, uh, can you tell us more about what you mean about virtual reality?
0: Sure. Uh, What physics has been showing us is that reality is not matter, it's not stuff, and it's not energy. Uh, In quantum mechanics, we have, you know, this gets back to the weird science. Well, what makes weird science weird? You know, we have entanglement, where you change. A spin state of a, uh, let's say an electron, and the spin state of, a, of an electron that is entangled with that electron on the other side of the universe immediately changes as well. Uh, that sort of entanglement uh, is just non, well, science calls it non-local. That means it cannot be explained by any of the normal ways that science explains things. It doesn't follow any of the rules of space and time and and matter. Uh, it just breaks all the rules. And that's what science keeps turning up, those kinds of things that break all the rules. So we see that our reality is computational. It's calculated. We look at our reality and we see our reality is mathematical. It's logical. It's not, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of, uh, uh, oddities in it. Once you understand it, then it's a, uh, you know, it, it's repeatable, just like a computer. You know, once you know why the computer computes something that way, well, every time you give it that input, you'll get that input or get that output. It's very reliable. Well, our whole reality is like that, and we can answer those experiments if we look at our reality as a virtual reality based on information. So, what does that mean? What what does it mean that our that our reality is information based? It means that instead of space, we have a a calculation of space. All you need to calculate space is an origin and three orthogonal axes, you know, x, y, and z. That defines space. So you can define space in a computer. You can define mass in a computer. It's just a number, you know, and in physics, if you look at all the fundamentals of physics, which is space, time, Matter, spin, um, mass—I guess I said matter. I should have said <laughs> mass. Uh, these things that are that are real fundamental physical concepts that all the rest of physics is made up of these simple things. We don't know where any of those things come from. What's the source? <laughs> you see, where does time come from? What is time? What what is uh you know what is mass? Where does that come from? Where does space come from? We talk about our universe is expanding but expanding into what you know if we are if our universe is all there is then what is it we're expanding into and how do you just make space to get a bigger universe as it expands so we have all these questions that don't make sense but an expanding universe is trivial computationally all of that's very easy and all of the weird things like the uh Maybe your people don't know what tunneling is, but that's where particles basically teleport. They're not supposed to be able to get into region B from region A, but they do anyway. So that uh, is called tunneling. It's, it's like the uh, double slit experiment and other kind of weird science. These things can easily be explained computationally. They're impossible to explain in a matter-energy universe. So virtual reality just means that it's computational. Our reality is computed, that this is a simulation. And I draw the, a similarity to other simulations like World of Warcraft or The Sims or any number. Actually, there's a new one coming out called No Man's Sky, which is uh, very, very close to the way it's produced is the way our reality is produced. Now, so let's look at some basics about uh, virtual realities. So I'm going to take World of Warcraft as a... As a uh, as an example, because it's just an easy example. And in World of Warcraft, you have various kinds of creatures like barbarians and elves and magic users and wizards and that kind of thing. So let's talk about an elf that we are playing this virtual reality game. We log on to the World of Warcraft server. We go, you know, uh, when we log on, there's our elf. And now we make that elf do whatever the elf does. We tell it to move, to run, you know, to look to the right, look to the left. It doesn't do anything unless we tell it that's what we want it to do. We tell it by moving the mouse or the joystick or punching the keys. Now, what we have then is that the elf is like our body. The elf is called an avatar. And we, the player, are like its consciousness. So we are the elf's consciousness. The elf doesn't do anything without us giving it instructions of what to do. We are making all the decisions. We're making all the choices. We're assessing all the information. It's not that the elf has a brain and is thinking about, you know, what am I going to do next? It's the player who has the consciousness and is wondering what it's going to do next. So that's the way that works. Now, there's a few fundamental things there that we should look at because all virtual realities have the same characteristics. The player, the human playing the consciousness, is not in the same reality frame. As the elf, the elf is in the World of Warcraft frame. The player is in the frame where his desktop computer is. See, two Mm. different reality frames. Mm. From the elf's viewpoint, the elf thinks that his frame is physical. You know, the the World of Warcraft has rocks and trees and mountains and sky and all that sort of thing. And the elf's perspective would see all that as physical. And the elf's perspective would see the player the consciousness, as non-physical. It's not part of his World of Warcraft universe. Okay? Okay. Now, the other thing is the we have the computer that's creating World of Warcraft. Now, the computer and the consciousness, the player, are in a dialogue back and forth. So the player says, elf, you know, jump up, and that goes to the computer. The computer then changes the picture on the screen, and the elf jumps up. Okay, So the player and the computer have to be in the same reality frame because they're in constant communication. And they are, of course, the, the player with his desktop and the, the server somewhere sitting in a warehouse that's, you know, that's doing this. We're in the same reality frame. And both of these reality frames, of course, are different than the Elf's reality frame. Okay, Now, that's just the nature of consciousness. Now, what does that say about us if we're in a virtual reality? It says that our body is like the elf. It's the avatar. Our consciousness is in a reality frame that's non-physical to us. And that the computer, which is the larger consciousness system, that's also in a non-physical frame. And that the consciousness and the larger consciousness system are both in the same reality frame because they're constantly chatting with each other. So what happens is that the consciousness, which I call an individuated unit of consciousness, it's playing this character that is your physical body, but it's making all the choices. It's making all the decisions. Your avatar, your body, your physical body and its physical brain are just ones and zeros in a computer. It doesn't really exist. It just seems to exist, just like the elf. And the trees and the rocks and the sky and the mountains in World of Warcraft seem to exist. It's the same way. But there are connections between the two. And that is the World of Warcraft, of course, was programmed. Our virtual reality just evolved. It started with uh, initial conditions and a rule set that said how energy could exchange within these, within uh, this. This is a virtual world, and then the run button was hit, and it started to evolve. Now, I call that the big digital bang because the initial conditions were a ball of plasma, high temperature, high pressure, and when the run button was hit, the rule set, let it expand, cool, form galaxies, form planets and suns, and you know then us, and now here we evolved on this planet. So we're part of the evolution of this virtual reality games. Ours is not a program. It's, a, it's an evolved reality. That means that we as consciousness playing this character uh, can only do what the rule set allows us to do. See, the World of Warcraft is the same thing. If I say, elf, flap your arms and fly, you know, well, the elf can't do that because the rule set in World of Warcraft doesn't support my elf flapping his arms and flying. Elves can't do that. Uh, If my elf falls into the water and I don't know how to make it swim, it drowns. Well, that's the rule set. So the player is constrained by what he can get his elf to do and what you know the elf can manage based on the rule set that describes World of Warcraft. So the elf can only see so far, run so fast, uh, jump so high because of the rule set. We're like that too. You see, our bodies can only do so much because of the rule set. So, if my avatar, Tom Campbell with this body, if he, uh, you know, gets banged in the head with a pipe or something, then the rule set calculates what changes in the restraints on the consciousness. You see? So now I get hit in the head, and because of the rule set, besides all the biology, as well as all the physics, is described by the rule set that makes up this virtual reality we call our physical universe. Then now maybe I talk with a slur and drag my left foot when I walk because I have brain damage. It's a not a, you know, this physical brain is just ones and zeros in a computer. It sets the constraints on the consciousness though. The consciousness can only do what the avatar allows it to do according to the rule set. And if I get hit in the head with a pipe, then the rule set calculates what the new constraints are on the consciousness based on that, action of being hit. So that's kind of how the body, the consciousness and mind, uh, the virtual reality, I'm trying to give us a big picture, you know, the larger consciousness system. I've defined a whole lot of things here and an individuated unit of consciousness. So that's sort of the big picture of who and how we are. Now, the one other thing, and that is that we as consciousness, as individuated units of consciousness, we're playing this avatar. But it's a completely uh, immersive game. Now, when we play the elf in World of Warcraft, we can always put the game on hold, go fix a sandwich, you know, go take a walk or go take a nap and then come back and play it the next day. Well, that's not the way it works when it's totally immersive. You're in it 100%. So the consciousness that is playing our body started when we started, probably uh, pre-birth. Where there was something to see and something to hear, that consciousness had nothing, had no information, no intellectual information, but it did have a certain amount of quality about it. And it takes that quality, that experience that it's created, and that's all it has to deal with. So it gets this experience and it has to learn how to walk, how to talk, how, you know, what's the difference between an apple and a car. It has to learn language. It learns all that real time as it experiences it. So that's that's kind of the difference between us, the body, and us, the mind. We're not really the body at all. We're the consciousness.
1: And the larger consciousness, which is the computer, is mm-hmm. that that is the one that creates the rule set to begin with, that larger set yes. of consciousness. Now, tell me more about the What is tell me more about that?
0: Okay. Now, this larger consciousness system, that is the whole consciousness system. Now, we individuated units of consciousness, just a piece of that system. Mm-hmm. So we have this larger consciousness system. And that's as big a system as we can see because we're parts of it. So we can't get outside of it to look back at it in some kind of objective way. We are a part of that larger conscious system. And because it's an information system, it has to survive by creating information. And in scientific terms, that means lowering its entropy. It has to take randomness that is very high entropy. Entropy is a measure of disorder. So when everything's random, that's as much disorder as you can get. And then you create order. Well, that order then represents information. So the the information systems evolve, survive, stay information systems by creating more useful, more significant information out of bits that are otherwise random, you see. So that's its thing to do. And we are pieces of it. And it had to create these pieces of itself that could interact with each other because that gave it a whole new way of creating information and reasons to create information. So that helped it evolve. So what we are are pieces of this larger consciousness system, and we have the the mission, if you will, the goal to help the whole thing evolve. So we're here experiencing this virtual reality so that we can make choices, so that we can make decisions. We have free will. We make choices. And if those choices are good choices toward lowering our entropy, then we're part of the system's evolution. If those choices are bad choices toward de-evolving, toward higher entropy, then we are part of the system's de-evolution, you know, moving toward death or uh, dissolving. So that's our job. We're part of this system's strategy for staying alive and evolving. Now, this means that we as consciousness, we're not the body. So when the body dies, we don't. We're consciousness. The body is just numbers, you know, ones and zeros. It's it's a it's created by a computer just like the elf. <laughs> so the body dying is just because of the rule set. The consciousness goes on and When the body dies, what does the consciousness do? Well, it gets back in the game, just like you would. If your elf died, you'd get back in the game. Because this idea of, well, here's a game, you can log on, you get to play once, you know, and when something happens to your character, you're done, you can't play the game anymore. Well, that's kind of a silly way to run a game, because you'd never have enough time to learn anything. You'd never get good at it, right? Everybody who plays those games know your character dies a whole lot, Yeah, you know, probably 10 times every Day that you play it. So that wouldn't be much fun, and you would never get to the point that you really learned how to play the game. You'd never get good at it if that was the case. And it's the same with us. We get back into the game so that we can make more choices, learn how to evolve rather than de evolve. One other thing I might say is that uh, take a little time to describe it. And I I won't do that, but you'll have to trust me on this one. Evolving, making choices that lower entropy, those are making choices in the direction of love, caring, cooperation. You see, you have now a social system of these individual units of consciousness. There's a whole bunch of them. They interact with each other with free will. How do you optimize that and build as much structure and content? Well, you do that by cooperation. Caring, it's about other, not focused on self. On the other hand, if you go to the opposite and say you have the social system and it's based on the opposite of love, which is fear, it's all about fear. If you have fear, then you don't have trust. You know, it's it's all about yourself. It's all about me. What can I grab and hold and take and defend? And, you know, who's going to try to take it away from me? And fear is something that is high entropy if somebody else has something that i don't have then i have to plot a way to get it or take it away from them or somehow uh you know get rid of them so i can build one myself or it's a very divisive kind of thing when it's all about you <laughs> so when it's all about other that's love and that's cooperative and that builds and constructs so that's this that's this difference so the low entropy means cooperation, caring, love about other, high entropy is the is the fear, the, it's all about me sort of thing. So that's where we are. We're here. And that's why everything we do as far as uh, stories, literature, movies, you name it, all of our culture is kind of based on this good versus evil theme, right? It's running in the background through everything. And that's because that's fundamentally what we're here for. We're here to make decisions and choices based on love and caring. And that's how we evolve. That's how the system evolves. And as we make poor choices based on self-centeredness, uh, fear, belief, ego, expectations, all those sorts of things, then that's de-evolving. That's where we don't want to go. So there is this constant uh, struggle going on. So that kind of sets the tone for who we are, why we're here, what our job is, you know, what the point of our, of our existence is, and uh, that we are really consciousness. We are not our body.
1: Staying on this idea of the, the video game, talk to us a bit about free will versus destiny. So I remember, you know, in in the first book of your trilogy, you talk about an experience you had when you were younger, I believe you were 14, is that sound right? Um and uh, there was one example of where you you gained understanding of the relationships you would have in your life. Um yes. So talk to me about free will versus choice using this world of War- Warcraft metaphor. Okay.
0: Well, in free will, that doesn't mean you get to do everything you want to do or have everything you wish. That's, free will is not having a, you know, a genie that will uh, make all of your wishes come true. Free will simply means that of the choices that you have right now in front of you, and I call that all of those choices that you have right now in front of you, I call that your decision space. These are all the decisions that you can make based on whatever's going on in your life. Now there may be more decisions that you could make, but you just don't know about those. They're outside of of your knowledge. They're out they're beyond your comprehension. So let's say there's a hundred possible choices you can make, but you only know twenty of them. There's only you can only count twenty if you make the list. Mm-hmm. The rest of those you don't even know. Well it's that twenty define your decision space and you have the free will to choose which one of that 20 you're going to do you're going to pursue so that is what free will is it's of the choices that you have you get to pick which one you want to do and to pick not to do anything is also a choice you see so you can pick that choice so you always have choices and how you make those choices is what's important it's the It's the intent behind the choice is more important than the actual doing of the choice. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: sorry. So so just again, I want to wrap my head around this. One example I once heard um, by somebody else we interviewed, Laura Lynn Jackson, who is a medium. Um, She wrote the book, The Light Between Us. She said the way that it was explained to her uh, as a metaphor is that it's like a constellation with stars in the sky. There are certain points that you're sort of destined to hit, but how you get there... Will determine the the picture at the end. So it could be a really squiggly line. It could be a you know a beautiful straight line. Um, so you eventually get to certain points, but your choice within that determines sort of the lines between them. Is that what you're saying in terms of free will well versus choice?
0: Well, no. It's you know it can be more or less like that, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be. Okay. Now what you know what she's talking about. There are no things that you have to hit. You have free will and you have complete free will. So it's not like you have free will, but you have to get to this point. Okay. If in your free will you decide that that's not where you're going or you make choices that make it impossible to get to that point, then that's just the way that is. On the other hand, we can. Now we're talking about coming back, right? After your elf dies, you get <laughs> your elf back into the game. Well, we come back, and most people call that incarnation. Uh, <laughs> in my books, I call it a new experience packet. But uh, anyway, when you go around and you get, you know, you have more and more of these incarnations. You get to sometimes uh, grown to the point that you do have certain goals. You come here with the idea that what I need to work on is my, you know, ability to have empathy with other people, or anger management, or some other sort of thing. This was kind of my downfall uh, in the last bunch of lives, and I need to get over that. So you may plan something. That has you being in very specific situations where, let's say, anger management is a key thing that you kind of forced to come to fundamental decisions about your anger in these in these scenarios. So that's kind of planned, you see, and the system can nudge you to get there, which is what happened with me. That you mentioned that uh, I was fourteen and I had vivid, I had clear uh, description that the female that I was going to uh marry and spend my life with at the time I was 14 was a two year old baby in a different state, you know, different place altogether. And, uh, you know, I didn't find that very, uh, uh, comforting at all. You know, it's like I thought I would, I would have to, you know, be a monk for another, uh, you know, 20 years or something before, uh, that could work out. But anyway, uh, what happened is it's not that that was predestined, but it was set up as part of a plan. And then you get nudged to, to go there. So let's say she, she was in another state. I got, I got a nudge somewhere in around the time she was just getting to like 18, 19, and 20. I was uh, getting nudges that I needed to move to that state.
1: And when you say nudges, that's what an intuitive hit or synchronicities, things like that. Yes, exactly.
0: It's an intuition. My intuition was, and events conspired to push me that way. You know, the things that I was doing where I was just for some reason that was hard to to understand just weren't working out, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was time for me to make a move. So it was that sort of thing. So things just conspired to push me in that direction. And then I ended up right in the right place at the right time, and we bumped into each other. So we had that that meeting. And when we did, I was pre-programmed to resonate you know with that person. So there was an immediate resonance there. And you know so that's how it's not predestination that there's no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. but you we do get nudges by the system to help us. But if I just decided, no, I'm not going there, you know, I don't want to, you know, live in that part of the world or something, and I'd overridden my uh my nudges and so on, then it just never would have happened. I would have had to do something else. So
1: I uh, see. So sort of going back to the video game with the world of Warcraft, which I've never played by the way, but now now I kind of want to. Um is is that the elf, let's say the elf was supposed to beat the girl elf, just again to stay on this example. Mm-hmm. And that was in several different levels uh, ahead. But mm-hmm. the elf could invariably decide to go through a different door or could drown or I, could, could, anything could happen. Yes. Even though yes. that, that, that other reality existed with the girl elf, it was there waiting, but he just didn't choose to go there.
0: Yeah, or she, like or you she, say, she whatever, got yeah. run over by a truck. Right. You know, things things happen like that. So the plans don't always work out. But with enough nudging, you know, many of us have been in this situation where it's like uh, we're, we're in an automobile accident. The car rolls over three times and it looks like it's, a you know, by the time you crawl out of it, it's only about you know, two feet high mm-hmm. and only half as long as it was. And you crawl out and you just have a little scratch on your elbow and you say, how did I survive that? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Well, those kinds of things can happen, too. You know, we are in a virtual reality and almost, you know, when there's uncertainty, when there's lots of uncertainty, like in a car crash, it's uncertain just how the metal bends, then the system can modify that virtual reality such that it, you know, can keep A storyline going, you know, Mm -hmm. so you don't kill the character off because of of an accident. So those sorts of things can happen, too. The system can intervene in our behalf for those things. But that's now up at a level where plans are made. You have uh, missions to accomplish. That's not where most people are. Most people are down more in the beginning levels where it's just more of an in and an out which means, and I mean most people, I mean just worldwide. You know, the, of the seven and a half billion of us, you know, most people are at the point where they just need more experience. So they get into an incarnation. Now they get it. They are playing an elf now, and they just are to experience. And when that avatar dies, they come back out, and they just jump into another one, maybe different one this time, different part of the world, different race, different sex, just to get more experience. So in that case, there really isn't any plan other than to just get experience. So I say that everybody isn't the same. You know, It's not like we're all doing exactly the same thing and we all have these plans and we're all getting nudges. It's not like that. Some people are, some people aren't. Sometimes you're very scripted in what you're going to do and sometimes the script is very loose and sometimes there's no script at all.
1: Does that Go depend ahead. on sort of the evolution or the level of your soul, or, or is that even Yes, an example? That
0: depends yeah. on where you are in your evolution. And basically, what that means is it depends on what you need. You're trying to evolve. You are part of the system's strategy for its evolution because as you lower your entropy, you're part of it. It gets the lower, you know, it lowers its entropy too because you're part of it and you've lowered yours. So the system wants you to succeed. So if you have things that you need to do, ways that will help you evolve the quality of your consciousness, then the system will help you do that. But sometimes what you need is not something specific like to work on anger management, but it's something general like get experience. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's what you need. So whatever your needs are, the system will try to set you up that you get those. You get the opportunity to grow up and to make the choices that you need to make. And sometimes that takes scripting and sometimes it doesn't.
1: And how do people identify? So if our listeners are listening to this right now, and I'm sure they are asking themselves, well, what do I need to learn? Like, what What is my thing? What, <laughs> I know. Yes. I, I know it's what I'm asking myself. So how do you begin to identify that? Or do well, you?
0: Yes, you can identify that. And there's a very easy way to identify that. Um when you get it right, when you are a being of love, when you make all your choices to lower your entropy and to become love, which is where we are evolving toward, then life is sweet. It's good. Things just work out for you. You are happy, you're satisfied, you're fulfilled, and whatever happens to you, you deal with it in a in a good, creative, positive way. Okay, so now how do you know you need things to work on? Well, if you have anything in your life that's negative, if you ever feel angry, upset, uh, unfulfilled, unhappy, you know, if you uh, ever, if, if you have things like stress, anxiety, you know, things just aren't working out. Uh, you know, life sucks. There's pain and all of that, then that means you have things to learn. So who do you know that doesn't have any stress, You know, that doesn't have any (laughs) anxiety, doesn't have any things to learn? You know, we all have things to learn. Now, how can you tell and how do you go about learning these things? Well, first, just be aware of your intents and your feelings. Start there because your intents and feelings will tell you a whole lot more than your intellect will tell you. Your intellect has a has a bad habit of telling you what you want to hear rather than actually what's there. So if you have a feeling and that feeling has any negativity to it, let's say it's just anxiety or upset or things aren't working out right or you aren't able to control the things you want to control, you want to control things in your life. If you have those things and, and They're not working out. Your control isn't working and so on. That is an indicator of fear. Now, it's hard to necessarily connect that feeling of anxiety or that feeling of, of, of being upset with a particular fear, but you can relate it with a particular ego. You can say, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel upset that this person said this about me? Why does this upset? Me. you will find if you work it back to the most fundamental answer to why does that upset you you'll find a fear oh this upsets me because i have a fear of being inadequate i have a fear of not being liked and when they said this about me this nasty thing about me then that upsets me because it triggers this fear i have of not being as much as i think i ought to be of not being liked not being appreciated So there's the fear once you find the fear then you just have to get rid of it. You need to say, you know, that fear is not helpful. Fear is never helpful. Fear is always a problem. So then you'd have to get rid of it. And the only way to beat fear is with courage. You have to, one, want to get rid of it. Then you have to just accept it and say, okay, I accept that fear. That fear is me. I am like that, but that's not the way I want to be. So how do I need to be different? And when that fear comes up, you immediately, instead of reacting as the fear would make you react, you don't, you overcome it. So it's kind of a force of will, dedication to purpose, and the courage to face the fear that are required. So everything in your life that isn't really full of joy and happiness and satisfaction is. Something that is ego or belief, and it's being, you know, it it will take you back to a fear. And that's what you're supposed to be doing here. That's the things you need to grow on. So most people are full of fear. Most of us, our whole life is informed, is is, uh, lived out in fear. We're afraid of all sorts of things. We have fears that we don't know we have. And a lot of our interactions, our needs, our wants, our desires are all based on fears that we have and overcoming these fears. Fears of being, you know, uh, insecure is a fear, you know, inadequate is a fear. Lots of lots of people make most of their choices out of fear. Most of our most people spend their lives trying to control things. But the control comes from fear. So we want to control you know, our significant other. We want them to give us the things that we want and that we need from them. Well, we need them because of our fear. and We want them to do these things. We want them to act a certain way, to appreciate us in a certain way. We fear for our children. We want our children to grow up in a particular way. We have all of these things we want to have happen. We want our boss to give us, uh, you know, a raise. We want the neighbors to, you know, stop their dog from barking in the middle of the night. We have all these wants and things. And if they upset us, cause us anxiety, make us angry, then that's a problem. We need to deal with these things, not from fear, but from love, from understanding, from caring and make it about other, which means you accept the things that you can't change, but you don't let them, you know, you don't accept them with your teeth grinding. You don't accept them because, you know, you have to and, you know, I just have to live with that. Well, that's still negative. You you accept it. And it means it's okay. You live with it and you live with it gracefully. So that's where everyone needs to go. And that's what we are here for and what our purpose is. We have all these choices in our decision space. Most of our, a lot of our choices are how we react to things. Somebody says something or does something and interacts with you, you get to react to that. You choose how you react to that. So you we think, oh, so and so said something that made me angry. Well, that's not true. So and so doesn't make you angry. You choose to be angry. There are other ways you could choose to respond to that. And if you were a loving, caring person, you wouldn't choose anger as the way to respond to that. Anger wouldn't be one of, in your decision space. You see, so that's the nature of this, of this reality. It's really, it's really a nice idea, right? We're all here to become love.
1: It, It is. I, and I love this sort of three steps that you shared and I want to just process it through my own brain to sort of help um, so using that idea of relationships that are triggers to us, like, as you said, mm-hmm. whether it be a spouse, whether it be a boss, a friend, a parent, a sister, you know, any, whatever. Right. Um, so take that trigger relationship. Number one, become aware of your feelings and intense. Uh, notice where you're getting triggered. Number two, trace it back to a fear. So whatever the trigger is, you then circle it back, circle and back, circle back into what am I afraid of? So for right. example, if it's a boss that really, um I've had many bosses that have pissed me off in the back in my past. So I would take for an example of a boss. I would say, okay, she drives me crazy. She's always asking me these things. She takes credit for my work. You know, just there's all these things I don't like about her as a person. and I don't like working for her. I trace it back to what would the fear be in that example? I would just have to keep digging to say well, is it then I'm a fear that I'm not good enough?
0: Yeah, yeah it's a fear that you're not good enough because she's always is criticizing you. It's right. the fear that you're not being appreciated because she mm-hmm. takes your takes your work okay. and presents it. Yep. It's the fear that uh, you know you're not getting uh, you're not getting what you're due. Mm-hmm. It's like you you've done accomplishments, you've account- you know, you've accomplished done things and you're not getting anything from it that you think you should get from it. So it's, it's a, what do we call that? You know, an old woe is me, you know, right. you become, pity you become party. Yeah, it becomes pity. You become a victim yep. and then you get into a victim mentality and all of that just goes downhill. You know, that never works its way out of that, out of that pit. If you, if you uh, get those sorts of things. So you look at it and say, well, what's, what's the real thing? What am I afraid of? Well, mm-hmm. I'm afraid of of just not being appreciated, Mm -hmm. of uh, being, uh, you know, overrun and this and that. And you can accept that and say, well, okay, that's me. I have that fear. Now, I don't have to react that way. I can make, you know, what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. Well, then you start saying, what can I do about it? Well, some of the obvious things you can do is, you know, change jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go maybe talk to the boss and see if a conversation might help some. Be very straightforward. That may make it worse. Mm-hmm. You know, if it does, then obviously changing jobs is, uh, is going to happen sooner instead of later. Well, that's okay. See, it moves you in the right direction. Mm. It, it moves you in the, in the, in the direction of a solution. If you confront it and you say, well, I'll talk to the boss and say, I'll just tell her how I feel and, or tell him how I feel. And then you need to start looking for something else. In some other place rather than continually be a victim in that place, you need to you know you need to start looking for solutions, but you don't look for solutions until you really understand what the problem is this this triggers me now maybe there's some other place in this company that I could move you know where I have a different boss, or maybe I need to understand the boss and see where's the boss coming from where's the boss? whatever. And maybe we can find a win-win for both of us where I get to do my stuff and the boss gets to, you know, take some of the credit, but not necessarily all the credit. Mm -hmm. And the boss, you know, so maybe we can work out something that I see the boss, the boss is also working out of fear. Yeah. The boss says if they don't get their, you know, if they don't take credit for it, then, you know, they won't get their promotion and this sort of thing. So then they're using you to, you know, for their own benefit. And maybe... You can talk to the boss and find a way that if you work together, you could actually do a lot more, you see, yeah. and that uh, you could be a lot more motivated and get more work done if you, you know, if you got some of the re- reward of the work. So if you can talk to your boss and find a win-win, then you do that. If you can't figure out how to do that or you try and it fails, then it's time to move on. But in either case, you're not angry. You see, yeah. you've you've accepted it. Okay, I have to move on. It's not like, oh, I have to move on. That damn boss is driving me out of here. <laughs> you see, instead of going through all of that, it's like, well, you know, I think it's time for me to look around for something else. Mm, it's and,
1: acceptance.
0: Yeah, it's acceptance. You don't have to be angry about it. It's not that you change reality. It's just that you interact with, with reality in a totally different way. Instead of seeing yourself as a victim, you're always empowered to make choices that solve your problem, you see, whereas the victim just kind of has a pity party, you know, woe is me, and it isn't fair, and so and so and so on, the person who has accepted it, understands what's going on, tried to fix it, and let's say that doesn't work out, well, then they just see that they need to go someplace else, it's not them, you see, instead of when the boss says, oh, you screwed up again, you realize, well, that's not me, that's the boss, mm. you see? Yeah. I'm you know, I'm OK with with what I've done. I don't I don't have the fear anymore. So I don't have to say, oh, no, I screwed up again, you know, and beat myself up because I didn't get it right. I can say, well, actually, I did a pretty good job there and I did the best I could. And that's not really good enough. I ought to move on someplace that, uh you know, where my talents and abilities are a better fit. Yeah. So it's it's just you lose the anger. You mm. deal with things from acceptance and from empowerment rather than from, uh, you know, being a victim and from trying to control. So you don't want, you're not, it's not that, Oh, I know. I I know how I'm going to get my boss. You know, I'm going to do this and that, you know, now you're, you're into the the control thing. You're trying to manipulate the situation to be more the way you want it. Well, you just accept the situation and deal with it in a positive way.
1: And if you think about that again, coming back to the game, if I'm assuming you play, uh, World of Warcraft um, with other players, right? Again, I've never yeah, played. Yes, so it's okay. a
0: multiplayer game, right? Thousands and thousands of people all over the world are all playing at the same time.
1: Okay, so that would be the example. If I were the elf and I were trying to control, I don't know who else is in what else is in there, um, the savage, I think you said, or something, yeah, it would okay. be like as if I, as the elf, were trying to control the savage, but the savage is controlled by somebody in Australia. I have no control over what the savage is going to do. That's right, right. the example.
0: Exactly. You have um, no control. You just deal with it. Yeah. You accept it. Okay, that savage is constantly coming after you, and you know, and sending you to the graveyard, mm-hmm. or is constantly getting in your way, or doing something. But you just have to deal with it. Yeah. It's it's nothing that you can control. So you say, okay, that's the way this is. Maybe I'll just go to some other part of the game right now. Yeah. And and work on that part rather than sit here, be a victim, and get upset and get angry. And all that sort of thing. I just deal with it in a positive way. So see, you're still happy. You're still positive. You're still having fun. Yeah. And you're, you're dealing with the problem in a positive way rather than becoming, you know, angry, upset, anxious, a victim, all that sort of thing. So you see, it's just the way you choose to deal with things. It's not that you have to change reality to suit you. This idea that you need to control reality to make it suit you is part of the problem. Yep. Let reality be however it is. And you just deal with it in the best, most caring and loving and honest way that you can.
1: All right, hi, everybody. It is me, Susanna Scully, coming back to you. I am sorry to have to cut off that conversation, um, but I wanted to break this into two episodes because we did go long. Um, So I apologize for having to do that. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So thought provoking. Um, I just had a lot of ahas and I'm just still noodling on what does that mean? If our everyday is more like a virtual reality, Um, do I take things differently? Do I, you know, when I'm in situations, as he talked about that, if they piss me off, how can I... Practice more acceptance? How can I then reflect inward to say, what is this trigger? What is the lesson here? Uh, I really, really enjoyed that aspect. So, we continue going in the next episode. So, what you can look forward to is we then get into manifesting. And I really wanted to get a physicist's thoughts on manifesting and how it actually works. So, that is a very fun and great conversation. And then We get into the role that probability plays into our life, um, which actually goes into the manifesting conversation. So I hope you will tune back in for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. And if you had any thoughts on this episode that you want to share with me, please tweet, Facebook, email, whatever it may be. I love hearing from each of you. All right. Have a great day.